Bibles and turn to John chapter 4, please. John chapter 4. If you're a guest here today, we have been working our way through the book of John on Sunday mornings at 11, and we are finishing up John chapter 4 today. That's where we find ourselves in our study, and we're going to begin in verse 44, excuse me, verse 43, down through the end of the chapter. And let me just read a few verses here. Our text really is going to be verses 45 and following, but the Bible says in verse 43, Now after two days he departed thence and went into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And let me just stop right there. The Bible says in verse 43, after two days, he departed thence. We've just come off of considering where Jesus met with the woman at the well and his ministry in Samaria and how because of her, many believed on the Lord. The Bible says in verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. And so there was some sort of a revival happening Uh, in Samaria. Then in verse 43, after two days, Jesus stayed with them two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. Now, let me just give you just a little review of where we've come from since we started uh, our study in the book of John. A lot has happened, actually, in John's gospel leading up to our text today. And I'm going to start with really the ministry of Jesus. John chapter 1 introduces Jesus Christ to us as the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Uh, John the Baptist enters into the scene, and John the Baptist testifies that it is he who is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. But I want to start with really where Jesus' ministry began, and we... Uh, I want to go back to John chapter 2 because in John chapter 2 we find where Jesus has gone to Jerusalem and Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's running out the money changers in John chapter 2 and verse 13. uh, The Bible says this, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of the money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house and house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Look at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now I read that because I want you to go back to John chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 45. Because the Bible says that when when he was come into Galilee, the Galileans received him having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. So basically what this is talking about is that the Galileans received Jesus because they saw what he did in the temple. 
They saw what he did afterwards, how he performed many miracles uh, in Jerusalem and so on. All right. And so Jesus has performed these miracles in Jerusalem during the Passover week. Uh, that had, a, had an impact not just on the people who saw, but it had an impact on the religious leadership. If you look back in chapter 3, John chapter 3 and verse 2, here we find that Jesus has met with Nicodemus. Verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. That impact of Jesus' miracles didn't affect just the common people. It affected the religious leaders of the day. Nicodemus said, we know, meaning him and other religious leaders, we know that you're a man come from God. The difference was that the other religious leaders rejected him as the Messiah. They knew in their heart, but they rejected him. He meets with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews in chapter 3, who felt like his religion was sufficient to get him to heaven. Jesus says in chapter 3 that you must be born again. Nicodemus, you've got to be born again even to see or understand the kingdom of God. Your religion can never save you. At the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist declares that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Look at John chapter 3, verse 22. John 3.22 says, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea. And there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi... He that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then from there, we get into John chapter 4, where Jesus, where the Bible says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. And here Jesus encounters the woman at the well and offers her eternal life. She accepts his offer of salvation. The Bible says she goes back to tell everyone in the city what had happened to her. And because of that, many multitudes more were saved. So here is the basically charting a course of where Jesus has gone in his ministry up to this point. Well, now we get into the end of chapter 4, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is back in Galilee. And we pick up the narrative, and we pick up our story in verse 45 and here's where our text begins this morning then when he excuse me then when he was come into galilee the galileans received him having seen all the things that he did at jerusalem at the feast for they also went unto the feast so jesus came again into cana of galilee 
where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in the which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. I'm going to talk to you this morning about this nobleman's son who was healed. And I want to ask the Lord to bless his word in our hearts today as we make application from it for us. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd use your word today to challenge us, Lord, in our own faith. And Lord, to grow us up in you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to hearts today, even to draw some to salvation that are not saved. And Lord, to challenge and encourage the hearts of the believers here to, uh, toward faith in Christ and belief in your word and, and bother the things that you can do to accomplish uh, your will in our own life. And Lord, I just pray that the word of God would be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we dig into this miracle here that Jesus performs in healing this nobleman's son, I want to take note of the wording of verse 54. Let's read that again. Verse 54 says, This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, we just read a little bit ago that Jesus did other miracles prior to this. We read how many believed because of the miracles that he did. Now, we don't find record of exactly what those miracles were, but the Bible makes note of this, that it's the second miracle that he performed in Cana. Verse 46 tells us that, that uh, he came into Cana of Galilee. Okay, verse 46, look at it again. So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. So the Bible makes specific mention of the fact that this is the second miracle that he performed in Cana. And it's a clarification and a specific location that is there for a reason. And I think it's meant uh, to, for us that we might set the two miracles side by side in comparison. Even though Jesus did other miracles, it makes particular mention that this is the second one in Cana. What was the first miracle? The Bible tells us that he turned water into wine. And, and the, the context of that miracle was a wedding. It was surrounded by joy. It was surrounded by blessing. It was surrounded by life in that miracle. This miracle, the second one, was completely different. 
It was surrounded by sorrow and sadness because of the sickness that was really bringing this uh, boy to the point of death. Two opposite extremes. One of life, one of joy, one of happiness, one of sorrow, one of sickness, and at the point of death. And I say that on purpose, and I want to highlight that on purpose, because, listen, we need to understand this, that life has an equal amount of both of those things. Life has an equal amount of, of, there's joy and rejoicing in life, but there's also sickness and sorrow in life. And what we learn from that is that Jesus Christ is needed in all the circumstances of life. You know, there are bad times in life. There's a lot of them. And we all know that. We've all experienced it. And how many times do people cry out to God in the middle of tragedy in life? You know, you hear this saying all the time, something terrible happens in the, the governor or, the, you know, or, or the, the, the mayor of a city or even the president of the United States or whoever it is. They'll come on uh, the, the screen in front of the world or in front of all of America and say this, our thoughts and our prayers go out to all that are affected by this tragic event. You hear that saying a lot, don't you? Our thoughts and our prayers go out to all who are affected by this tragic event. And I often think to myself, what does that even mean to them? They deny God in their regular life, but when tragedy comes around, they cry out to God in the middle of tragedy. When in their normal life, they don't have a relationship with God. And so often it's simply something that sounds good to say, but it's completely meaningless. Why? Because because of this. Because when the happy times of life come around, their attitude is, who needs God? That's why it's evidence that it's meaningless to them what they say, because the happy times of life, I don't need God. There's no thought of God in their life. But when tragedy rolls around, we cry out to God. And I'm simply saying this, how different life becomes when all of life is built upon God being the center of everything. Good times and bad. He is peace in the hardships of life. But he's also the source of every good thing of life. Because James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh from above. It cometh down from the Father of lights, where, where, where there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good thing comes from God. It reminds us that it is God who made us and not we ourselves. It reminds us that we have nothing to glory in of ourselves because every good thing is from God. But it also reminds us that Jesus Christ is needed in every circumstance of life. And how much better to build life on the fact that God is everything to me. What we find in our story here in this account that there's a nobleman, a man who's experiencing some tragedy in his life. And he comes running to Jesus Christ. And I want to break this passage down 
and make some applications for us this morning that will be very relevant to your life and to mine. First thing I want you to notice is the nobleman's plea. The nobleman's plea. Look at verses 46 and 47 again. The Bible says, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Here's the nobleman's plea. Obviously, the plea was that Jesus would come down and heal his son who was at the point of death. But let me make note of this. The Bible calls this man a nobleman. The word nobleman is the Greek word basilikos, which has the meaning of a king. And so it paints a picture for us of who this man actually was. The word can mean of royal blood, certainly, but this man probably was not of royal blood. He was most likely part of Herod's court. He would have been a servant or in service to King Herod. But the point is, the Bible makes note of the fact that he was a nobleman. It gives an idea of the kind of position that he would have held. He was a man of power. He was a man of influence. He was a man of wealth. He was like a king. He had a very high position in King Herod's court. Now, the Bible also mentions that he lived in Capernaum. At least that's where his son was. He was from Capernaum, and it indicates to us that he would have been, because of the fact that he was from Capernaum, an official in the service of Herod Antipas, who was Tetrarch of Galilee. He was a man of wealth. He was a man of position. He was a man of power. He was a man of influence. I think it's also interesting that the miracle happened in different locations. He was in Cana of Galilee where Jesus was, but his son was in Capernaum. Verse 46 tells us that Jesus was in, in Cana. The certain nobleman was in Cana. He had a son who was sick in Capernaum. He came to Jesus and said, you need to come to Capernaum to heal my son. Now, understand this. Cana was probably between anywhere between 10 and 20 miles from Capernaum. Now, that was a lengthy distance to travel back then. It would, it would really be like walking from here to Fairbanks. That's a long way to walk. It's quite a distance by foot or even, even by uh, horse and carriage or whatever. It was a lengthy distance, surly. And we make that point. But what is even a greater distance and even uh, more than, a, than, than physical distance here uh, is, is, that needs to be considered is the, is the social aspect, the social distance that is being expressed here. Here, this nobleman who's a Roman, who is a king, who is a high position in Herod's court, came to Jesus, the Bible says, and besought Jesus that he would heal his son. And what it tells us is that this nobleman of position and wealth and power had to come and humble himself to one who most people saw as nothing but a lowly village carpenter. 
The Romans, and especially those of royalty, thought nothing of the Jews. They were despised, in fact. And here's one who has position and power and wealth, who has access to the best doctors of the day, who has unlimited resources. Here he comes to humble himself to the one who most people saw as nothing but a humble, lowly carpenter. Let me make this application here this morning. Rank, wealth, position did not exempt this man from sorrows that are common to mankind. There's no home in which sorrow and death cannot come to. The rich are no better off than the poor where these things are concerned. We might have social classes, you know, in, in our country and in this world, the rich and the poor. But I'm telling you, the rich are no better than the poor where these things are concerned. Sorrow, sickness, death, it plagues every man. It's the human condition. But God can and does use these kinds of things to arrest the attention of people. C.S. Lewis said this, God speaks to us in our health, but God shouts to us in our pain. How often does God use tragedy or sorrow in a person's life to arrest their attention, grab hold of them? It was a crisis in this man's life that led him to direct contact with Jesus Christ. So here's the application. This crisis was actually a blessing in disguise. Why? Because uh, it caused this anxious father to seek out the one who actually could do something about it in his life. It resulted in him believing on Jesus Christ himself, and ultimately we find that his whole house believed also. That means his family believed. It means his servants believed. All those that were associated with this powerful man came to know Jesus Christ. And you know what? God uses all kinds of things to draw people to Himself, to believe His Word. It could be a crisis. A crisis often makes people start to think seriously about life and what's important. And even the need to prepare to meet God. How often has someone had health issues come into their life, all of a sudden they're diagnosed with cancer, and they're sick, or or they're going to be sick, and, 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 and all of a sudden the reality of what this is going to do to them causes them to be afraid, and it starts causing them to think about their mortality, that this life is short, it's going to be over, I'm going to stand before God. How many times has that happened? You know what, that in itself is, even though sickness and sorrow is is the result of sin, God still can use it and does use it to draw people to Himself. That is the mercy of God, friend. You know what? It's good when trouble leads a person to God rather than away from God. Affliction is just one of God's tools. You remember the verse we read this morning? Psalm 119, 71? It was good that I was afflicted. Because it taught me thy precepts. Let me ask you this question. 
Do you have some struggle in your life? Maybe some relationship problems? Maybe some trouble that you found yourself in that you even got yourself into? Financial problems or hardships? You got some struggle going on in your life right now? The question is, are you seeking to come to God? Are you seeking to submit yourself to God? Or are you fighting and trying in vain to fix what you can't possibly fix on your own? God may just be using that to try to draw you to himself. How are you responding? This nobleman came to Jesus. He humbled himself. Came to Jesus because of the crisis in his life. You think about all the access he would have had to medicine, to the best doctors, unlimited resources, and nothing, nothing like that could help. But he had heard that Jesus was there. He knew, obviously, of what Jesus had done. And it drew him to him for help. The nobleman's plea. But I want you to note, secondly, the Lord's response. This is interesting because verse 48, we read that then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. Now on the surface, Jesus' answer seems a bit surprising. Here's a man who's desperate, who cries out to the Lord, come and heal my son, he's, gonna, he's about to die. And Jesus says, except you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. We think, well, doesn't Jesus want to help? Of course we would think that Jesus wants to help. Then why does he respond like this? Well, it's quite possible that Jesus is speaking to more than just this man. Because of his position of who he was, there would likely have been an entourage of people with him. He would not have come alone probably being a nobleman. Maybe there were others there, and maybe the heart attitude of those people were that they just wanted to see a miracle. There's lots of other people who responded like that. They just wanted to see a miracle. And their heart wasn't truly seeking after the Lord. And miracles were performed by Jesus Christ, often to arrest the attention of people, to get them to look not at the act itself, but beyond that, at the one who is doing it. Remember what Nicodemus said? We know that thou art a man come from God, because nobody could do the miracles that you do, except God be with him to look beyond it to the one who actually is performing it. But how often did the, did the Pharisees themselves completely ignore the miracle that Jesus performed and, and, and took issue with him because they hated him? When a miracle was done, who can do that but God? Completely ignored it. Jesus' answer was actually a rebuke to the attitude either to the crowd that was with him or alone to this man. It really doesn't matter. It was a rebuke to, the, to them because there probably were some there who were only interested in the miracle or the benefit that they would get from it 
and not the one who was performing it. And I said that on purpose because, you know what? There's an application here. This thought and idea is still the distinguisher between those who are curious and those who are serious about the Lord. How many, in times of crisis, cry out to God for help and for deliverance? And they say, God, if you get me out of this, I'll never do that again or whatever. You've heard that before, right? They're in the middle of a big problem. God, if you just rescue me, God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do that again. And all they really want is an escape from the consequence of their situation or the gain that it will bring them. How many times have I talked to somebody, given them the gospel, and they're in, they're in terrible times in their life, their life is miserable, it's a wreck, and, and the gospel is presented to them, and all of a sudden they're just like, oh, this is what I need, this is what I've been searching for. And they even uh, make a profession of faith in Christ, but all the while, they never really intend to be obedient to God. All they want is, to, uh, is a quick fix to the problems of their life. They want an escape from the consequence of their situation or the gain that somehow that's going to bring them. <laughs> How many, I don't know, we're just talking about Red Rock Canyon and going and visiting that this summer again and so on. The last time I was in Red Rock Canyon, we were riding the four-wheeler up and down the trails and as you drive through and you, there's a glacier off to the side and just looking at all the the mountains around it's beautiful and the last time i was there riding through there i would always see these green lush valleys that would just run up ravines or valleys that would run up the mountainside and i told Kara at the time like man i just i just love to ride my four-wheeler straight up that thing it looks like it'd be so perfect so easy to do and we went out through and we had our fun day and we're on the way back and i'm still looking at these valleys that run up the mountainside and and I'm just like, man, I would just love to just drive the four-wheeler up there and so on. And, and, and so she's like, fine, do it. I'm like, you want to come with me? She's like, no, I ain't doing it. She gets off, and I'm like, man, I take off. I'm going up this valley. And it was awesome going up there. <laughs> and at one point, I stopped. And I mean, it's pretty steep, and we're looking up, and four-wheelers climbing fine, whatever. And I stop, and I turn around, and I look behind me, and it was like, oh, boy. What in the world have I gotten myself into? Because now I'm like thinking I either need to turn around and go back down or I need to go all the way up because I'm not in a really good spot right here. I'm thinking I can't keep going up. I mean, how am I going to get back down? Because looking up, it looked fine. It looked easy. Looking down, not so much. And here I am on the side of this mountain trying to turn my four-wheeler around, leaning way off to the side like this because of the weight that's going to tip it and roll it down the mountain. I finally get it turned around and I start to creep down. And I've got this, I've got a, a two-seater four-wheeler and I'm sitting way on the back of this four-wheeler like this with all my weight and my feet up on the, to, just to try to, because it's so steep coming down and I'm like, I'm in big trouble and I'm riding the brakes, you know, coming down. And there's potholes and ravines. And there was one point when I literally started praying and saying, Lord, if you get me out of this, I will never do this again. 
That's no lie. I prayed that prayer because I'm in big trouble here. And it was a mistake to try it, to do it. And I eventually got down to the bottom. It took a long time, but I got down to the bottom, and I've never done it again. (laughs) I simply am saying that most of the time, we want an escape from the situation rather than being drawn to the one. You understand what I'm saying? Or the gain that it will bring And most of the time, people never really intend to obey or please God. But let me say this to you. God knows the kind of heart that we have because nothing is hid from His view. Someone can say that prayer. Someone can have those thoughts. But you know what? God knows what's really in the heart. This is why Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. Because He knows what's in the heart. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 that the Word of God is quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of a person's heart. The very next verse says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can't hide from God's word. You can't hide from God's eyes. Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And I'm saying to you that God knows your very thoughts this very second. He knows if you've got an attitude toward him of love. He knows if you've got an attitude about something that's probably rather petty, but it's keeping you from being in God's will and having a relationship with Him. God knows it. You can't hide it. Look at verse 49. Because in verse 49, we find the limited faith of the nobleman. We see the nobleman's plea. We saw the Lord's response. But I want you to note the limited faith of the nobleman. Because in verse 49... The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Note the phrase, come down, ere my child die. The man is expressing some faith here, but it's limited in its scope. There's a measure of faith that's here, otherwise he wouldn't have come to Jesus in the first place. Word had gotten out that Jesus performed miracles. We read that in verses 45 through 47. And so he comes to Jesus expressing or or exhibiting a measure of faith. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. But his faith is limited in the scope. It's limited in two ways. Note the word heir. He says, come down, ere my child die. Now, that word basically means while there's still hope, while there's still a chance, while there's still life in him, then there's hope. Come down, ere my child die. Meaning that as long as he's still alive, there's still a glimmer of hope. 
In other words, if you don't come down and come now, he's surely going to die. And basically, he thinks that Jesus can only help him as long as his son is still alive. Let me make an application with that. We often operate the same way. We say, as long as this particular thing doesn't happen, then there's still a chance for God to do something about it. You understand what I'm saying? But if this happens, then all hope is lost. As long as this doesn't happen, there's still a chance for God to do something. And you know, whatever our minds can imagine to be a finality is where we draw the line. After that, well, then there's no hope. It's impossible. And you know what that is? That's putting God in a box of our own imagination and our own understanding. You follow what I'm saying here? This man said, ere my child die, as long as there's life, there's something Jesus can do. But if he dies, it's hopeless. We operate the same way. As long as this doesn't happen, then maybe there's a chance. But if that happens, there's no hope. And we put God in a box of our own imagination and understanding. But notice that he also said, come down. Now, we talked about the difference between Cana and Capernaum and the distance that's there. Come down to Capernaum, else my child die. He thought that Jesus needed to be present in order to heal him. He believed that Jesus could do it, but he didn't believe that he could do it from a distance of 10 or 20 miles, but he had to be by his side. But you know, there's an application there too. I think we do the same thing with God often. We mix faith and sight together. And we say things like, you know, I can see how God could do this, but if it be goes beyond the scope of what I can actually imagine, then, well, it's hopeless. I don't see how this could ever happen. I don't see, I don't understand how God could provide for this and, and so on. We, do, we, get, we, we put God in a box, a box of our own imagination or understanding. But the Bible tells us that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask and all that we even think. You know what? My imagination is pretty big. I can imagine some pretty grand things. And it's fun to talk about potentials for the future and imagining what could happen. I can dream up some pretty amazing things, but let me tell you this. My big imagination is actually a really small box to be putting God in. He's able to do so much more than I could ever even think or imagine. This man's faith was limited in the fact that he thought that there was, it was going to be hopeless if his son died. But we know that that's not true. Amen? His faith was limited in the fact that Jesus needed to be present, that he couldn't do it from a distance. We also know that that's not true. But we often do the same thing by not fully trusting the ability of God to do whatever he wants to do. And we limit God by putting him in the box of our own imagination. Now look at verse 50. We see the man's faith was tested. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. 
And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. This statement by Jesus, go thy way, thy son liveth. It wasn't designed to turn him away, but it was designed to turn him toward Jesus in faith. He had to believe Jesus at his word for it to be true. And his obedience to go his way was the evidence that he actually did believe. And let me say this to you. It's our obedience, even in the face of uncertainty, that proves our trust or our faith in the Lord. Most of us want all the details spelled out. The plan clearly in place so that I can see it all, so that I can sign off on it, and then I'll really trust the Lord. Why do we need to have the plan in place? Why do we need to see it all out in front of us? Why does it have to all be there to sign off on all the details spelled out? The reason we feel that way is because there's a feeling of security that the plan brings and it bolsters our faith. But is that really faith? Is that really faith? When the plan's all laid out, I can see it. There's that sense of security there. Oh, I can trust the Lord. Is that really faith? Obedience to the Lord, even when we can't really see the outcome, is actually the evidence of my faith in God. But God's never failed. God's always proven himself to be true. I use this illustration often, and I've used it here a few times, I'm sure, to demonstrate trust and faith. I've told you the times of uh, uh, when, when Jovi was a little girl, when she was just three, four years old, and, and how it was fun you know, for us. And I, I would put her up on the kitchen counter, and she would jump off the kitchen counter into Daddy's arms, and I would catch her. And the thing that we would do to test it is I'd put, she'd jump off and I would catch her and then I'd put her back up and she'd jump off and I would catch her. I'd put her back up and then I would back away. Jump. Come on. And she'd stand on the edge of the counter with her toes over the edge like this and she'd be goes like, oh, all nervous and like, oh, that's pretty far, Dad. I'm like, I'll catch you. I promise I'll catch you. And eventually she would just lean out and she would just launch herself off the counter and I would catch her. And she would laugh and we would hug and then I would put her back up and we'd do it again and I'd back up a little farther. But you know what made her keep jumping every time? That I never dropped her. Never once. And it gave her the faith that dad's going to catch her again. God operates that way in our life sometimes. Little increments. You got to trust me. I'll take care of it. You don't need to see the whole plan. You just need to obey right now. And we trust in the Lord. And we obey and we see God provide and we see God work. And it grows our faith for the next time when God backs away a little bit. 
says you just need to obey again. Drawing us to him, growing our faith. This man's faith was tested. It was his obedience that proved whether or not he really believed. And listen, here's the principle. The test of our faith is if we're going to move forward in obedience, even if we can't see it all planned out for us. The need to feel that security before we move on something is actually something that hinders our faith and it hinders our growth. We need to be willing to be stretched. We need to be willing to obey. And the Lord will do that to us so that we can grow. I think that is a mark of a loving Heavenly Father. That's God's grace to us. So often we see it in the negative, though, that I don't like this stretch. I don't like this feeling of being stretched. I don't like the feeling of uncertainty. I don't like how this makes me feel. And we operate life by how we feel rather than on trust and faith. That's not what God wants for us. Well, let's look at the last of these verses, verse 53, or 51 to 53. We see the miracle itself and its effect. Verse 51, And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. There's two things to notice here. And I want to talk about this, but I also want to ask two questions when we get through this. The questions that I want to ask that we need to make application as we close up is, what does this miracle teach us here about Jesus Christ but the second question is, how should I apply this in my life? And we've been making some applications along the way. But let's ask this question. What does the miracle teach us about Jesus Christ? In verse 51 and verse 52, it teaches us that distance and circumstance are not a barrier to God. Distance and circumstance are not a barrier to God. Verse 51, and he, when he was now going down, so he's on his way back to Capernaum, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. That distance was 10 to 20 miles. The circumstance was the point of death. But neither of those was a barrier for God. Apparently, he expected a gradual recovery. Do you note the wording of verse 52 when he said, What hour did he begin to amend or begin to get better? But then you notice the servant's reply, The fever left him. It was the seventh hour and the fever left him. Their answer seems to indicate that immediately this boy was fully, completely recovered. 
And their answer reveals that at the very moment that Jesus said, Thy son liveth, the boy got better. The application here is, this nobleman was wrong in supposing God can only accomplish what he asked of him in the way that he imagined things to be. He imagined that he would gradually get better. What hour did he begin to amend? But so often we put God in the box of our own imagination or or our own desires. And we need to learn to trust Jesus Christ enough to allow Him to operate in our life whatever way He chooses, not how I imagine it will go. Without expectations put on Him of how things are going to be. Have you ever experienced that? I have this expectation of how I want things to go in my life, and I'm going to pray that God makes that happen. And it's really according to my will and not according to His. Lord, whatever you want to do, when you want to do it, and how you want to do it, I'm okay with. I trust you. True faith is not merely accepting from God that which we have asked for, but it's the ability to accept whatever He gives to us and believe that it's the very best, even when it's different than what I've desired. I need to say that again? Because that's happened in my life. I imagine how this will be the best for me. And I say I'm surrendered to the Lord. But then God shows me, I'm not going to give you what you think. And now I'm faced with the reality that I'm actually not as surrendered to the Lord as I think I am. And I have to come to the conclusion that, okay, God, you can have your way, and I'll trust that whatever you have for me is actually the best. And when I yield to that and I start to see God's plan unfold, all of a sudden I realize I don't even know what I want, I don't even know what I need, but God does, and I'm good with what He has because this is absolutely the best thing, and I could never even have imagined this. Some become bitter and discouraged in their life when they've prayed about something, they've desired something, and they're not helped in the way that they sought after that thing. Like somehow God was obligated to do this thing, and He didn't do it. You understand what I'm saying? This man got way more than he actually thought he was going to get. He got way more than he actually asked for because he simply believed Jesus' word. He came seeking physical healing, which the Lord did. But because of his faith and his obedience to the word of Jesus, God gave him spiritual healing as well and the rest of his house. He and his household believed that faith in this man was contagious in that God used his faith to affect the lives of other people as well. What an awesome God. It teaches us that none of those things are barriers to God, distance and circumstance, but it also teaches us that God's way is always true and God's way is always sure. Verse 53 says, So the Father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said, Thy son liveth. The father knew. 
Listen, if we would simply leave things in God's almighty and capable hands without limiting Him by our expectations, He's going to accomplish the very best all by Himself. And we can be full of peace when God has spoken and we obey because His way is always sure. His way is always true. What more do we need than God's Word? Amen? He's God. So let Him be God. His Word and His promise never fails. But this is where we make application again for us. There's two applications that I want to make. One for the unsaved, one for the saved. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, salvation comes to the sinner the same way that life and healing came for this man and for his son. It's simply a matter of taking God at His word that we are sinners, that we deserve His judgment and His wrath. The penalty for our sin is death, and we deserve it. But Jesus Christ took upon Himself the penalty for our sin. And He gave His life. And believing in the Word of God, believing that God said that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Believing the Word of God that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Believing that Jesus Christ took my place and there's no other way to be saved. That's how life comes. By believing the word of the Lord. And being obedient to the gospel and repenting. That means changing your mind about your sin. Changing your mind about your life. Understanding that my life is an offense to God because He's holy. I'm sinful. God, I don't want to be that. I need you to change me turning in faith and repentance to God. Just believing His Word. That's how life comes. And the result of that is always going to be new life. But there's an application for the saved as well. And here it is. Ask yourself the question, am I limiting God in my life by putting him in a box of my own thinking and my own expectations. There might be some things that seem impossible to you, and so you constantly live in doubt and maybe even discouraged. But distance and circumstance are not barriers for God. Let him be God. And just trust Him that His way is always true and right and however He wants to work it is going to be good. And yield. That's the answer. Are you fighting? Are you limiting God? Or are you trusting? 